Our Lord, we echo those words also with uh, in mind the words of John at the very close of Scripture when we say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We do long for your return. We who are your people long to know the fullness of our salvation, the fullness of our inheritance. We have the first fruits. We have the taste of the world to come. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the forgiveness of sin. We have the promises, Lord, that our hearts align with and that we can begin to taste the sweetness of. And yet, we are so marred by the indwelling sin and remaining sin in us. And so we rejoice and we sorrow at the same time and we long, we long for your return. We long to be with you. We long to be in resurrected bodies, imperishable, undefiled. We long to be in your presence with nothing within us to cause shame, but only a fullness of exaltation and glory and joy and worship that we'll offer to you and delight in with one another and all of the holy angels for all of eternity. Lord, these things are too great for us to understand fully, but we do ask that you would increase our understanding as the days go by as you unfold the truth of your word to us, that we could live with greater anticipation and greater holiness. And Father, now we ask as we open your word this morning to consider the issue of gratitude, that you would teach us what it means to truly embrace grace and how that should affect our character and our outlook on the world and, and all of this to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, as you noted uh, in the prayer, if you were paying attention and not praying your own prayer, which is fine if you want, uh, is that we are going to take a break from Ecclesiastes this morning and because of the season and look at the topic of gratitude. Look at the topic of gratitude, a very important topic and an essential topic to the demonstration of our life in Christ and to what it means to be a light uh, in this world. Gratitude is defined in one lexicon as this, it's good enough, the quality of being thankful Readiness to show appreciation for and to return kindness. Uh, the quality of being thankful. The, the attitude of being thankful. Uh, we sometimes hear the attitude of gratitude. That's a, a catchy little pithy way to, display, to say the same thing. And as noted, gratitude should be the dominant mark in the life of anybody who knows the grace of God in Christ. Gratitude should be a reflection, a certain reflection, an obvious reflection of his life in us, of our having received all of the promises of grace in Christ. It should mark every Christian. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't mark every Christian. It doesn't mark us all the time. We tend to sometimes be not much different than the world in our attitude, and we grumble and complain. And so scripture addresses that. He says in Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling and disputing. And so when we live in light of the grace that we've received and we obey this command to not grumble and not dispute, to not whine and complain, then we show ourselves to be different from the world, to be separate from the world. In the language of Paul, to be lights in the world. He says this, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So in a very real sense, the gratitude and the way we live right life within a, a heart that appreciates God's good gifts that is thankful, that does not grumble, that does not complain at providences that seem to cross our way or other people who do the same. We demonstrate then the reality of his life in us. We demonstrate the life of Christ. And so it's an extremely important thing for us to understand, gratitude. And so we'll briefly consider it this morning. And we're going to look merely at the importance and reasons for gratitude in the Christian life. This isn't exhaustive as with any topic and you, there's a variety of ways at which you could approach it. So we're going to do it very simply this way by briefly looking at uh, the sin and the reasons for ingratitude or the sin and source of ingratitude and then secondly, the righteousness and reasons for gratitude. Pretty simple. 
we'll make a few points underneath each one of those. So we're not looking at a specific passage this morning. We'll be jumping around uh, a little bit, but hopefully you can stay with me. First of all, then, the sin and the source of ingratitude. The sin and the source of ingratitude. And first, ingratitude results from unbelief. The reason that gratitude should mark a Christian is because we believe. We believe in who Christ is. We believe in his promises. We believe in everything he says about what he's doing in this world, what he's doing in our life. But unbelief accepts none of those things and is marked then very often by ingratitude. In fact, you're well aware that one of the most profound and fundamental statements in all of Scripture about the fallenness of man is found in Acts chapter 1. It's Acts chapter 1. After displaying or talking about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven because the glory of God, the kindness of God, the majesty of God, the attributes of God, all of the wonders of God and the cares of God for his world are displayed every day, screaming at us from all of creation. And men know this. They know it inherently because we are made in the image of God and yet suppress this truth and unrighteousness. And what is the, one of the key manifestations of the way this truth about the glory of God is suppressed or, is, or the suppression is manifest? And he says this in verse 21. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or what? Give thanks. They did not give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. They did not give thanks. Every day, all men everywhere experience the reality of common grace. That is merely to say God's goodness indiscriminately shown to all of humanity. God's common grace. He causes his sun to rise. He causes the rain to fall. He causes fruitful seasons and flourishing and the enjoyments of the things of creation to all men get to enjoy that. And in doing so, he's revealing his character, he's revealing his power, he's revealing his glory. In Psalm 17, 14, I mentioned this, I I think last week, but the psalmist says this, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, and then these are the wicked, he says, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, in other words, they do not look beyond whatever pleasures this life has to offer to raise their mind higher and their thoughts higher to the... God who created this world and gives them these pleasures. He says, whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. Your treasure, that means every good thing that this creation has to offer is from the treasure of God's grace, the treasure of his goodness. And he says, they are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to babes. That's Psalm 17, 14. In the book of Acts, you remember that Paul and Barnabas, after they had done a miracle and the the people wanted to come and offer them worship as gods, he said this, Paul did, to restrain them. He said, God did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. So every day men walk around, even those who reject the reality of God, who do not honor him, who do not delight in him, who in no way offer their lives in service to him and to reflect his glory or in any way show appreciation to him, experience the goodness of his kindness. That should lead to repentance. But ingratitude rejects those things out of unbelief, out of suppression of the truth, and therefore is not thankful, is not thankful. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. It makes sense that gratitude would follow a rejection of God as creator. So if you don't believe that God is the creator of all things, if you don't believe that he is the source of all good, if you don't believe he's ruling over his creation and that everything you have is from his kind and good hand, then why would you be thankful? It doesn't even make sense. Of course not. There's none to thank for the things that just happen or that come from mother nature or that come from luck or that come from the strength of my own hand. And so ingratitude then comes with a rejection of God. And it really creates a a miserable condition. If you were to jump down at the end of chapter 1 of Romans, don't, I'm going to just read it to you unless you're there. 
It says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. They're filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. That's, an, that's a thankless culture. That is not a culture that is marked by gratitude. It is marked by incredibly deep and profound selfishness and pride. And so a mark of unbelief and of sin is ingratitude. A second cause of ingratitude is pride. And of course, these are all intertwined together. A humble person is a grateful person. You want to know a humble person is somebody who's thankful. They're thankful for the smallest things because they see in all of them good that is undeserved. He or she is not focused on self, but on God and others. A humble person gladly says with the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, at the end of an explanation of this panoramic view of God's work of redemption, he says this, the very last phrase of a wonderful section, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. And a humble person, a Christian, a humble Christian, gladly reads those words and says, yes, from him, through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory. My heart resounds with that, that is true. I am glad to give God glory in every good thing that he gives me. A proud person, however, says just the opposite. A proud person looks at life, looks at the things that are enjoyed, looks at the good things that God has given them, and says, from me, through me, and to me are all things. To me be the glory. To me be the honor. To me be the gratefulness. Certainly would not humble myself to give it to God. Why should I? I did these things by my own hard work, my own ingenuity, my own sacrifice. I should receive then the praise for them. So that is a proud person is then a not a thankful person. A humble person is a thankful person. They ultimately feel, the proud person does, that there's no one else to be responsible to or there's no one else to give thanks to because they are the source of every good thing that comes into their life. A third reason for ingratitude, one is unbelief and sin. Another is pride. And thirdly, and this is the last one I'll mention briefly, is a sense of entitlement. And of course, again, these are all connected. A sense of entitlement. And if there's one thing that marks our culture is a sense of entitlement. If you're a parent, you know that that is ingrained into our children and supported, it seems, at every part of culture, of entitlement. I deserve. I deserve. It's mine because I deserve it. And Entitlement is essentially the inward attitude of feeling and, or feeling that we are owed good things, that good things are ours by our right. They're not ours by grace, they're ours by right. I'm entitled to them. And that plays into so many things which we won't get into, but it is at the heart of our culture. When good things are received, there's no need to be thankful because I'm only getting what I deserve. I'm only getting what I deserve. And again, it is the predominant attitude of our culture and again, we're not going to veer off course here, but it is the predominant attitude behind a progressive ideology, entitlement, entitlement, and it will destroy a people, and it does destroy a people. An example of this in the Old Testament, there's others that could be readily found, but one is in the book of Deuteronomy. It's also recorded in Exodus, but in the book of, excuse me, the book of Numbers, chapter 11, you'll remember that this is a section in the of Numbers that's accounting for the wanderings of Israel after they had been delivered from Egypt. And as they were delivered from Egypt, where they were delivered from the slavery and the bondage that they endured there, they were delivered by God's mighty hand, by examples of his mighty works to display before all of the, na the, the nation of Egypt and the nation of Israel that the gods worshipped by the pagan nations are nothing. There is one God in heaven. There is one creator. There is one redeemer. And his people is Israel. The people that he's going to bring out of the land to a land that he had promised to give them. And so it was with a mighty hand that he did that. It was with a mighty hand that he sustained his people. It was with a mighty hand that he displayed his presence with his people every day with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that they were led about wherever he was taking them. And yet, as soon as adversity would come, as soon as hardship would come, which they did even while they were in Egypt as God waited to give them final deliverance, it says this in Numbers 11. The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed 
some of the outskirts of the camp. He goes on in verse four, the rabble were among them. They had greedy desires. Greedy is attached to entitlement. And also the sons of Israel wept again. Who will give us meat? We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone and there is nothing at all to look at except this manna, this boring, plain manna. I had manna yesterday. I had manna the day before that. I'll have manna tomorrow and I have manna today. I'm tired of manna. I want something more. I'm entitled to more. And their sense of entitlement made them forget even the bondage that they were delivered from. And they began to long in this romanticized view of their time in Egypt for food. And in doing so, they rejected their God. And that is the case. We are one of the most affluent cultures in the history of the world. One of the most affluent people. And this is not new information. You've heard this before. We're also one of the saddest and most depressed It's incredible. We have so much, and it's like the more that we have, the more depressed we become, the more greedy we become, the less hopeful and thankful we become. It feeds the flesh in the sense of entitlement. So ingratitude is indeed a great sin. It comes from unbelief. It comes from rebellion against God. It comes from pride. It comes from a sense of entitlement. And that is the world and the culture that we live in. But In contrast to that, as we noted in Philippians 2, the believer is to be marked by gratitude, by gratitude, by thankfulness, a thankful heart. And so this is the second point, and this is where we'll spend most of our time. And the second point is this, righteousness, the righteousness and reasons for gratitude. Well, to begin with, we could simply note this, that gratitude, thankfulness is a command. It's a command of scripture. It's a command of God. He commands us to be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything, give thanks. It is a command. It's not merely a statement. It is a command. It's an imperative. It, It is something that God is demanding from us, from our will to do, to respond to. In everything, give thanks. He says, For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what the will of God is? There's several places where he makes explicit statements. He did earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, which is a one application of the bigger picture of growth and holiness. And here he says, this is God's will for you, is that you be thankful. In everything gives thanks. It's God's will to be thankful. And then if we are not thankful, what is it? It's sin. It's sin. It's disobedience to the Lord to not be thankful. When we grumble and complain and are not thankful, it is sin. It's actually a mark of rebellion. But a mark of righteousness is to be thankful. We are commanded to be thankful. Even more, we are commanded to be thankful because when we are thankful, it puts us in remembrance of God and of grace and of Christ. When we understand God's mercy and providence, his grace to us, then it's a natural overflow to be thankful. Now, let me give you one example of this. Uh, Somebody, I'm borrowing this. He says, one need not be swimming in prosperity to have cause to give thanks. An ice cube is sufficient. Let let him explain. My, Joel Beakey, one of the authors, Father once was weeping in a hospital room. When I discovered him in tears, he explained that he was not crying out of pain, but out of gratitude. A nurse had given him an ice cube to moisten his mouth, and he realized that he deserved to be immersed in flames and not have a drop of water to cool his tongue. Luke 16, 24 is about the rich man who went to Hades and was saying to Lazarus, who was in the bosom of Abraham, if he could just come and give me a drop of water because I'm in intense suffering and torment because of the heat of this place. And and this, this small act reminded him of that and it filled his heart with gratitude. And he goes on to say, we should be full of gratitude that we enjoy the least blessing of life instead of the well earned torments of hell. Even that small act because of a humble heart was moved to see God's goodness and to offer him thanks. Now, when we think of that command to be 
thankful in all things. Make one simple observation here. Scripture does not say, nor does Paul in that text say, give thanks, you ready? For all things, but he says give thanks in all things. Give thanks in all things, which is a good translation. In other words, we are not thankful for evil. We are not thankful for our failures and the failures themselves. We are not thankful for disease and cancer and sickness. We are not thankful for death itself. That's morbid. God never calls us to be thankful for those things. Jesus wasn't thankful for those things. But we are to be thankful in all of those things. In all things, give thanks to God. What is the distinction? How do we do that? It means then in everything that we experience, the command is, whether it be for blessing, whether it be for good, whether it be for our ease, for our flourishing, a time of abundance, or whether it be a time of pain, whether it be a time of sickness, whether it be a time of testing, whether it be a time of trial, whether it be a time of suffering in some form or another, we give thanks to God because even in the suffering, even in the experience of the effects of the fall on this world and the remaining vestiges of sin in our own hearts, we give thanks because we can taste of God's mercy in them. We can thank him because we trust his promises. We can thank him in the midst of it because they're being used to cause us to grow in grace. We can thank him because he's using those things to teach us wisdom. We can thank him because in the midst of our suffering, he does not leave us alone, but he upholds us with the strength of his spirit and his word in us. So we should be amazed and we are amazed when we see Paul and Silas who were beaten, who were humiliated, who were thrown into a prison, who were put into stocks. And by the way, they're not comfortably sitting on the floor. That means stretched out in an uncomfortable position in stocks, in a dungeon dungeon at night. And Acts 16.25 says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were thankful while they were in stocks. While they were in a dirty, dark, dingy prison, dingy prison. In 2 Corinthians 12, many examples could be given. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Paul had something that was very grievous to him. He prayed three times that the Lord might remove it. The Lord said, no. If you'll remember, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And what did Paul say? Well, okay. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I will be thankful then for this thorn. I'll be thankful in this trial of the thorn. Not because of the pain, not because of the thorn itself, but because of what God is producing in me through this trial. He's strengthening my faith. He's glorifying his name. He's shaping my character. And Romans 5 tells us that when we suffer in that way and he shapes our character, it actually produces in us a greater sense by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us of the love of God. The love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that context of Romans 5 is through suffering, because of suffering. And so it's not to obey this command that we enjoy the pain itself. It's not that we enjoy the the suffering or loss itself in those situations. It is that in them we still see the hand of God and we can be thankful it's a, I won't repeat it uh, here, but just remind you of the, many of you know that the oft-recounted uh, story of Betsy, who was in a concentration camp. It was Betsy and Corey Tinboom, and they uh, had been put there. They were hiding Jews, obviously, during the Holocaust, and they were sent to this camp, and uh, there's, there's many accounts here, but one uh, well-known account is when they were sent into the women's barracks in these terrible conditions, and just to add insult to injury, there was in the ones that they were going to all of these fleas. And they're like, seriously? You know, uh, in all of this, and now there's fleas. It was just infested with fleas. And Betsy, Corey Tim Boom's sister, immediately said, well, let's stop and give God thanks. And Corey Tim Boom was like, what? You know, what you, um, give God thanks for this? And she said, yes. And so they did begrudgingly. And as the story would go, God used those fleas to allow them to have a Bible study un unbothered by guards, and they were able to speak of Christ and encourage others and be a witness to those who didn't know him. Give thanks in all things. Why? Because God is doing something that we may not be able to see in the moment, and we can give him thanks. Here's a 
First thing, what is a cause for gratitude? Or what is one uh, characteristic of this gratitude? And the first is this. Gratitude must begin with God, not his gifts. It must begin with God and not his gifts. This is extremely important, extremely important. And it's one where more than we may realize we can easily go astray. When we are thankful, we are thankful to God for God and for his goodness and his glory displayed in the gifts, not first and foremost for the gift itself. And again, the order is essential. Otherwise, if we get this wrong, there is the danger of making an idol out of the gift and ignoring God in the midst of it. This can so easily happen. You might remember the count. I'm just going to mention it. I'm not going to go through it. But of the ten lepers in Luke chapter 17, Jesus came upon these ten lepers when he was on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 11, as he was passing through Samaria and Galilee, he entered a village there. And these ten lepers were there. And they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he said, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. They were made new. They were healed of their leprosy. They were no longer going to be those who were ostracized in society. They no longer had to suffer the consequences of this disease. They were made clean physically and restored to health as good as new. And so they went off. They were cleansed. And verse 15 says, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. Thank you, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for cleansing me. Thank you for healing me. And Luke is quick to note that he was a Samaritan. And what did Jesus answer to him? He said, they're not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found to return to give glory to God except for this foreigner? And I heard one person say, what, what were these other nine doing? And the answer is they were enjoying their blessing. They were enjoying their gift of being cleansed. They were enjoying all of the fruits that came from God's kindness in their life. But they had no room in their heart to give thanks. Why? They were so enamored with the gift. Indeed, it was a wonderful gift. But one turned back to give Christ thanks. One has said this, God is not glorified if the foundation of our gratitude is the worth of the gift and not the excellency of the giver. If gratitude is not rooted in the beauty of God before the gift, it is probably disguised as idolatry. It's probably disguised as idolatry. Another example, and I'll just mention this briefly, is Israel provides many examples for us, but if you'll remember again, when they were delivered from the nation of Israel, this great power of God, this great glorious display of his covenant faithful and his love for them and his goodness to them. Uh, as soon as they came on the other side, it says in chapter 15 of Exodus, they, they sang this song of praise to God. And it begins with these words, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. And then it goes on for several verses, praising God and all of his attributes and his glory and so forth. But this is the same people we read about earlier that as soon as adversity came, they complained. God blessed, they praised, adversity came, they complained. That's a pattern that we would see over and over and over. When God delivered them, their hearts were full of praise and gratitude. When God brought blessing and abundance into their life, they were ready to offer thanks and worship. However, when God tested them in the wilderness and caused them to experience want to teach them to trust him, they grumbled. In other words, God is as good as the last blessing that he gave me. God is as good and as worthy as the last good thing that he did for me. When things go awry then God is no longer useful to that person and therefore he is no longer worthy of gratitude and thankfulness, but rather grumbling and complaining, grumbling against God's hard providences, grumbling against the injustice that we have to suffer in this world, grumbling against God. Why is he doing this? Why did he take someone I loved? Why did he cause me to lose my job and not this other person? Why did these things happen? Well, I certainly cannot thank God in those circumstances. In fact, God has a lot of explaining to do to me. And we can be very like that, to thank God when 
things are good and to grumble against God when things are a trial. Again, we, we can see this in more subtle ways too. We can see this in sometimes in, the, in evangelism and whole approaches to the gospel promote this kind of thing. The more obvious would be, you know, go, come to God and he'll make your life better. He'll get you the job. You'll become successful in the things that you do. Come to God and he'll take away your depression. Come to God and he'll restore your marriage. Come to God and he'll give you satisfaction and happiness that you could never gain any other way. Well, guess what? You come to God, the marriage is destroyed, you lose your job, hardship comes into your family, you're rejected because of your testimony of Christ. It's difficulty after difficulty why the wicked seem to prosper. And we go, well, God just wasn't worth it. Or we hear this sometimes. Have you ever heard this? I tried God, it didn't work. You ever heard that? I tried God, it didn't work. God works for you? That is a self-centered view of God's providence. That's what we see demonstrated in Israel. That's what we saw with the lepers. But a truly gracious heart, a truly heart that has experienced the grace of God, thanks him in all things. If there is a good thing that comes, we see in that not merely the gift itself, but we see the goodness of God and grace to us. When hardship comes, we thank him for what he's doing in our lives and that he never leaves us and forsakes us. But it begins with God. Let me just put you to one passage here. James chapter one tells us this in verse 17, that every good thing given and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now James is specifically contrasting when he says that, he's making a very specific contrast with verse 13. Let no one say when I am tempted or when he is tempted, I am tempted by God for no man is tempted by, for God tempts no man to evil, but each man is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust and so forth. And in contrast to that, he says, not only does no temptation come from God, for God cannot be tempted from evil, but in fact, every good thing given comes from God. He gives only what is good. He gives only what is good. Everything God does is intrinsically good because it flows from his own nature and he is good. He is goodness John 1.5 says that in him is light and there is no darkness at all. There is nothing in God that is dark, that is wrong, that is in error. There is nothing in God lacking in wisdom, power, goodness, holiness, love, nothing. And so the immediate reference here, however, interestingly, is to the gift. And we might get confused here. Didn't we say that it's not about the gift, it's the giver? But the terminus, the end to which the gift and our understanding of it, and James's point here, is that the gift in its goodness, the gift that we receive from God as a reflection of his goodness, points us back to him and to his own perfections. Look at what he says if you're there. He points out two perfections particularly. The gift that we give that is good, the good gifts that God gives, comes down from the Father of lights. In other words, it is a sovereign act of God to express his goodness. The Father of lights, it's a rather unique phrase to James. The reference is clear enough, however. It simply refers to God as the creator of the maker in heaven and earth. All the stars of heaven, the sun and the moon and so forth. He is the God who is He's the God who made all things. And so the idea here is that it comes down from him who is good, him from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. It points us back to God. And he says, secondly, it is a gift that comes from him with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. There's no duplicity in God's heart. There's no inconsistency of motive and purity in his heart. There is duplicity and inconsistency and impurity in our hearts all the time, but not so with God. Not so with God. Nothing that he gives us can be accused of being anything less than what is perfectly wise and perfectly good and unwavering in all of his perfect and holy purposes. Whatever God brings, whether it be the best, whether it be a test or a particular blessing, blessing we can receive with the full assurance of his goodness. In fact, in the context of James, the first instance or example of the primary point he, that he gives, he says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. How do we know that every good thing comes down? Because we have experienced to know him the greatest good, which is to be brought forth by the word of truth, to be made to see the glory of God in Christ, to experience salvation. And the certainty of his goodness in all things is grounded in the goodness that we have already experienced in grace. 
when he opened his word to us to see and to hear and to respond to Christ, his grace to us in salvation. And so if we understand that, then we can say with Paul and reflect that the goodness that we've experienced of God, that we've tasted of God, uh, isn't a, a spontaneous act of God, a good idea that he had in one moment. It's not a reaction of God. It is a part of his settled and determined purpose before the foundation of the world for his people. Listen to Romans. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. So we as believers then can see everything that comes from the hand of God is good. It's good intrinsically. It is what should point us back to him as the giver of all good things. And even... even the good things that he gives us, even if that good thing is merely sustaining us in difficulty. Listen to how Paul develops that. And you're familiar, he works all things to the ultimate end of our spiritual good, which is conformity to Christ, which will be known in its ultimate reality and glorification. He says this, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You know, that verse is kind of like John 3.16. You hear it so much, it loses its power. That is one of the most comforting verses in all of scripture. That is to say that you as a child of God have been in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. That you who belonged to God, were chosen by God to be the recipient of his own love for his son. That you who belonged to God were chosen by God to be the recipient of his own love for his own son to enjoy every good thing that he gives to his son because of his work as our redeemer, because of his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection. God gives it to us. He says later in that passage, if God did not spare his own son, will he not also with him freely give us all things? And by the way, the context there isn't freely give us all things like, okay, great, I have a list. I can't wait to get show him. The freely give us all things is this, all things that are promised in our inheritance in Christ. He will indeed bring it about. And then he goes on to say, what shall separate us from this good purposes of God, this these, these kindnesses of God, this, this promise of God, shall peril, shall nakedness, shall sword, all day long we're being slaughtered like, or like sheep led to slaughter. Will anything, will any created thing, I'm paraphrasing, and he ends that whole section with saying, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say that to a people who are walking around in palaces sitting by the pool. He says that to a people who are suffering. He says that to those who are being persecuted, and he said, be assured of this, God's doing good for you, and God has good planned for you, and you can be thankful, because even in the midst of all of that, even as some throughout the history of the church would go to the stake, would be burned with fire, would be thrown into prison, and so forth, they who knew God could say, but God's love is as evident and as precious to me and is palpable to me now as in the times of my greatest ease. And he's doing good to me, and I can be thankful. I can be put up in stocks in a prison, and I can sing praise to God at midnight because God is good, and he's doing good to me. And this good thing that he's doing for me comes from him who has set his love on me. And so one said this, Calvin, God has such a disposition toward us in Christ that even in our affliction, we have large occasion of thanksgiving for what is fitter or more suitable for pacifying us than that we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. So every trial, temptation, and joy is designed by God for our spiritual good. Can you be thankful, are you? Think about the last, you know, just think about the last five difficulties you had. What was the response of your heart? What was the response of the heart? Think of the, the last five or so trials that tested your faith. What was the response of your heart? What was the response of your heart? What it should be, what it can be by God's grace is gratitude. 
Sometimes we're thankful after the event and we look back and we go, oh God, I see how he did good in this. Uh, But that's good. We should do that. I mean, that's a helpful thing. But real spiritual maturity is when we can be thankful in the moment. In the moment, with all of the mystery and all of the uncertainty of what God is doing, with all the experience of the reality of the disappointment or pain, we can thank God. We can thank God for what he's doing. We can thank God that he's sovereign and on his throne. We can thank God that he knows what is a mystery and in the dark for us. We can thank him. We can be thankful. And I'll tell you what, when you have that attitude and an unbeliever sees it, they go, what? There's something different about you. How can you thank God for this? How can you thank God for this? I heard a story. I sent out a sermon once. It's a story I heard a long time ago, but it's a true story. But there was this family. They were missionaries out in Utah. They were coming out uh, uh, to the master's college. They uh, brought some two. There was this family. They had two daughters, and then they had two guys that were with them. Uh, just that was a family they were witnessing to, and they were traveling with them. Well, as they were having the excitement of that time of going off to college, uh, the driver ran a red light, and a car hit them going 50 miles an hour, apparently, and I mean, it was instant, instant. There was no braking. And the two daughters who were Christians and ready to go to the master's college were killed instantly. And the two boys that were unbelievers that were with them were spared. And when, uh, uh, in this case, it was John MacArthur, when he went to visit this dad in the hospital and he said to him, you know, I, have no, I don't know what to say. And, and the guy shared, he said, you know, I was thinking about it uh, as he was going along. And one of the things that he shared was the, the second thought that came to him was how thankful he was that God took his daughters who knew Christ and spared these two unbelievers. Isn't that amazing? It can happen. We can get there. Grace is sufficient for that. But we do that by daily cultivating an attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving to God so that in all things we begin with him as the source of what he providentially brings into our life and we find reason to thank him. Let me go a little quicker here. Secondly, grace in Christ. Grace in Christ. That is a reason for thanksgiving. Grace in Christ. If you know Christ and you have forgiveness of sin, that is a reason for daily, continual attitude of gratitude in the heart. Uh, if you, for within Reformed tradition, Reformed believers, there's a common phrase as sometimes it's said. It's this. Uh, if, uh, if somebody comes up to you and they ask, we, we say this a lot to each other, uh, how are you doing? What, what do we sometimes say in response? Anybody? Uh, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. Things are going good. Things are going bad. It's better than I deserve. Why? What do I deserve? Hell. Condemnation. Judgment. What I have received is grace, forgiveness, hope, promises, the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's what I've received. One says this, gratitude reflects our worldview and the reality of salvation. Thanksgiving is a deeply theological act, rightly understood. As a matter of fact, thankfulness is a theology in a microcosm. When we are thankful as a people, we are acknowledging the reality of God. We are acknowledging the goodness of God. We are acknowledging the redemption of God. We are acknowledging our hope in God. We are acknowledging the strength of God. We are acknowledging the mercy and the kindness of God operative in our life, even in that moment. That is theology. That's our doctrine. And being thankful encompasses all of those things. He says a key to understanding what we really believe about God, ourselves, and the world we experience. What do you really think of God? Well, we know when we're tested. What comes out of the heart? Trust, faith, or gratitude? Gratitude. But if we grasp forgiveness, then we have always a reason for gratitude, because we're always doing better than we deserve, and we never experience one single moment in this life without a good purpose of God. Nothing. I think that's amazing. Nothing. No trial in our life is ever pointless. You know, you think of unbelievers, and what do they have? I just think, how do you deal with that? If you don't know Christ and you experience the tragedies, well, 
this hopelessness. There's no hope in it. What's the point of losing a child to a painful disease and watching them wither away in the hospital? What's the point to that? How, in the, as a matter of fact, that's why people reject God. That's part of the mentally in their mind. That's where often in these conversations they go. How could a God who is good bring about such evil, such pain? How could he allow these things, this innocent person, to suffer as they do? How could he do that? How could you be thankful to a God like that? That is a God to be hated and rejected. Certainly not a God to be worshipped. In fact, that's the cry of the unbelieving heart. But for us who have tasted the goodness of God, who understand the devastating effects of sin and know that the greatest testimony to the goodness of God that puts everything else into its own perspective is not the suffering that we see of those who were born into a condemned race, but the suffering of his son who bore the curse of the law for us. We can sometimes treat that so much as merely a doctrinal fact or a point of data that is to be believed to be, believed, to be saved. We can miss the profound and astounding reality that Christ was crucified, the eternal Son of God, for our sin. That's who God is. The fact is the goodness of God is not seen or in any way disrupted by the suffering that we see in this world. In fact, the goodness of God is seen in that there is a purpose to it and it's not the end. And the goodness of God is seen in that even in the suffering of that little child, at the end of it is an eternal glory. It's a moment. It's a spot in time. And because of the suffering of the son, that the innocent suffer, and yes, we can see the goodness of God in that because there's the end of it. The son of God suffered for us so that we don't go through this without purpose. And even then God is working good. But what is the end of it for the believer? It's salvation Do you think any of the martyrs praising God before the throne who were beheaded for their testimony in Christ are begrudging their being beheaded? They could say, I wish I had 10 more heads to be cut off that I could be with Christ. I wish that I had 10 more lives that could be thrown into prison that I could be with Christ. And such it is when we understand grace, when we understand grace. And so, in a very real sense, it seems counterintuitive to the world. We grow in gratitude the more we grasp the reality of our sin and wretchedness before God. If you don't grasp your wretchedness, then it's very difficult to be thankful to God in suffering. It's very difficult to be thankful to God in the little things. If we do grasp our sin and our wretchedness outside of Christ and what we've received by grace, then... Gratitude is a natural overflow. To grasp the reality of the person's position outside of Christ and by nature, that is, as we're born into this world, and to grasp what God did in Christ is reason for great gratitude. Who were we? Now think about this. We were enslaved to sin. It was our master We obeyed it at its every command. We struggle with it as believers, but outside of Christ, we didn't struggle. We willingly submitted to it. He told, Jesus did, the leaders of Israel, you are of your father the devil. That means that outside of Christ, you were a spiritual child of Satan. A spiritual child of Satan. He says to the church at Ephesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked. How? According to the course of this world. The world said it was okay. It must be okay. The world did it. Then I did it. The world showed this kind of entertainment and said, these are the things we should laugh at and enjoy and find pleasure in. Well, then I laugh at and find joy and pleasure in and direction in life. If the world says this is the kind of music that should feed my soul, well, then that's the kind of music I listen to to feed my soul. If the world says it's okay to kill a child in the womb, well, then it must be okay. If the world says it's okay to have homosexual relationships and get married, it must be okay. If the world says that a woman should never even consider the idea of making a priority to love her family and her husband in the home and raise children because that's an honor and a glory to her, and if they say that's stupid and that's a sellout and that's a rejection, then I must say that it is and I would never do that. We could go down the list. And that's how we walked, how the world thought we thought. He says, you're of your father, the devil. He says, you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then he says in Colossians, 
he transferred us from the domain. That, that word translated there in domain in, in many translations is the, is the word for authority. We were under the authority. We were under the dominion. That's what the translators are capturing. Of Satan, of his kingdom, of his world. And he does have a kingdom here granted to him for a period of time by God. That's why he could say to Jesus, I'll offer you to all the kingdoms that are mine to give. They were handed over to me. I'll give them to you. Jesus did not say, no, Satan, you got it all wrong. No, they were his. It was a kingdom that has an end, is going to be destroyed. But that's the kingdom that we were a part of. We were enslaved to our sin with no hope of getting out. And he says, he transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. One old author put it this way. Old is in time. I don't know how old they were when they wrote it. It's in the 1700s, but written very plainly. There are but two kings in this world, each having a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and of the devil, which are mortal enemies to each other. A third kingdom does not exist. Every person upon earth is either subject to King Jesus or of the devil, the prince of darkness. No matter who you are individually, you are a subject of one of these two kingdoms. You are neither neutral nor a subject of both kingdoms simultaneously. You're one or the other. And if we know Christ and we're a part of the kingdom of God and we are a part of the kingdom of grace and we are a part of the kingdom that is to come and we are a part of the kingdom which is marked by redemption, the forgiveness of sin and the mercies of God, then we have been rescued, not because we were inherently good, we are intrinsically more wise or better than our neighbor. We were not in this kingdom by anything within ourselves but by a sovereign act of grace because God chose to apply the work of his son to us in granting us life and regeneration, by granting us faith by the work of the Holy Spirit, by indwelling and sealing us by that same spirit, by guaranteeing that he will uphold our faith and all of its weakness and failures and so forth, but he will uphold it sincerely until he brings us safely to our eternal home. Not by grace, not by works, or by any initiative of our own, God breathed into us life, And when you realize this, and when we do, and we come to terms with the devastation of our sin and who we are outside of Christ, and then the reality of being brought into the sovereign mercy and eternal love of the Father for His Son, that He extends His love for the Son to us, and He gives us a share in everything that He has given to the Son as the Messiah, then we have reason to be thankful. Even our struggle with sin reminds us of God's grace and should be marked by thankfulness. Listen to Paul. But thanks be to God, Romans 6, 17, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. In fact, gratitude is the only right response to grace. Uh, I hunted it down and found a a statement I've mentioned offhandedly a few times by Francis Schaeffer. It was in a book called True Spirituality. I read it years ago, but this always stood out to me. Uh, this, a couple of parts of it, but this is one. He says this, I found it extremely helpful that when a man has accepted Christ as a savior, he should bow his head and say, thank you to the God who is there. Thank you for the completed work. How wonderful it is when a man has seen himself a sinner and has understood his lostness for that man to have accepted Christ as a savior and then have bowed his head consciously to say, thank you for a work that is absolute and complete. And this goes even to our failures and even to our repentance and even to our coming to God again and again. He goes on to say, if we have sinned, it is wonderful, it is wonderful to consciously, consciously to say, thank you for a completed work. That's hard to do. You think about your sin and the conviction. That means that I understand grace. You think about the level of comprehension of grace, even in our sin and our conviction of guilt, to be able to bow the head and with full assurance to say, thank you. Thank you that I'm not held responsible for that. Thank you that you don't deal with me on the basis of my sin and my fallenness. You deal with me on the basis of Christ. The finished work of your son, his atonement is so complete his sacrifice so perfect and accepted that I have nothing that I can offer to you, but I can know that when I come to you, I come to you in the assurance of a child who has been forgiven of everything, everything, even the sin I just committed, even the sin I'll commit tomorrow, not willingly, but knowing that I I will never offer to you perfect obedience. 
He says this, if we've sinned, it is wonderful consciously to say thank you for a completed work. After we have brought that specific sin under the finished work of Christ, we say thank you for work completed upon the cross, which is sufficient for a completely restored fellowship. And the result of this is obedience. I'll skip this one quote for time's sake. Let me go to number three. Being filled with the Spirit uh, and being filled with the Spirit in an obedient, word-centered life is another cause for gratitude. Grace frees us up to live for Christ, to be filled with the Spirit, which is marked by worship and gratitude. Listen to this. A few passages you're well familiar with. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, I'll just read it. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Do you notice the alls in these things? All things, every situation is to be marked by thanksgiving. Colossians 3, 16 through 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. If an unbeliever were to walk into our service, listen to our conversation, observe us in our homes, they should observe a joyful and a thankful people. Do they? Not always, but do they as the pattern of our life? Do we, do we exude gratitude in our lives and in our homes? But gratitude is not merely a human work. It's not something merely we do. It's the fruit of a spirit, as I mentioned, a word-centered life. In Ephesians 5.18, it is being filled with the spirit that produces psalms, the singing and the making melody in our heart to God, the submission to God. The gratitude to God. In Colossians 3, it is the word of Christ richly dwelling within us that produces the singing and the thankfulness in our hearts to God. It is when we know Christ and when we meditate on Christ and the grace we've received and are obedient to that, to that grace that we are filled with gratitude, filled with joy. In other words, we do not become a grateful people by focusing on the discipline of gratitude. Although we should be intentional and we should be discipline ourselves to intend to be thankful. But that's not how we become thankful people. Again, what I want to emphasize is the gratitude that should mark the Christian is what naturally flows up and wells up from the inside. It's not merely something we do that forcefully, but it is that we have such a conception of ourselves, such a conception of grace, such a conception and awareness of God's goodness and providence in our life in that moment in the present, that the natural reaction from within our very soul is to offer God gratitude and thankfulness. That's, that's a work of the Spirit, sanctification. So we become grateful people, not merely by saying words of gratitude, but when we cultivate gratitude in our hearts as we meditate more on Christ, the majesty of the glory in him, and Walk obediently to his word. As a matter of fact, before both of those statements in Colossians, he began that section with set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In Ephesians uh, chapter earlier, he had said, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's what's going to produce thankfulness. Let me go lastly here and where we end. How do we become a thankful people? And why should it mark us? One, because we recognize it's a command, but it's... God's goodness and everything that he brings into our life because we understand grace and the forgiveness of our sin, because we meditate on Christ and we're filled with his spirit and with his word. And finally, when we meditate on heaven, when we meditate on heaven, our inheritance, our future with Christ is a cause for endless gratitude and a heart of thankfulness. With the chaos of the world today, and it is a chaotic world, is it not? It is an uncertain, chaotic, insane world that we live in. And I personally do not think it's going to get better in the long term anyway, but it's going to get worse. But we as Christians in the midst of all of that have a sure hope in God. We have the certainty that Christ will set all things right and establish his kingdom. And so Revelation, not surprisingly, gives us pictures of gratitude in the presence of God, just before the unleashing 
of the, or the opening of the seven seals and the unleashing of God's wrath upon the earth during the tribulation period, we have a scene of worship and gratitude in chapter 4 to the Father. Worthy are you, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed. It says just before that, the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever. When we, I mentioned it earlier, when you have those who came out of the great tribulation and there before the throne of God, they were murdered for their testimony of faith in Christ, and yet it says they are around the throne, not saying, God, why did I have to go through that? God, why couldn't you have taken me before the pain? They said, rather, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. It's worship. And those who are in heaven and the message of the angel of heaven right before Christ is returned, the apex of this false and wicked and dark and corrupt kingdom of the Antichrist, right before God brings his judgment on it, there is worship. Listen, Revelation 19, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. He's avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up. Jump down to verse five. And a voice came out of the throne, says, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. That is the worship. That is the worship of God's people. And then he says in verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. They worshiped. It was gratitude, right? Because as bad as things are, they are going to be set right. And what's going to be ushered in is a kingdom of great glory. It is grasping this glory, if we could go back to Paul, who says in Romans 8 this. This is an amazing verse. Um, it's amazing to me, maybe to many of you. He says in Romans 8, he says this. He says, I do not consider... The sufferings of this world worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be brought to us. Hear that? He doesn't say, the sufferings of this world, I can endure them because something better is coming. I can put up with them. He says, in my mind, and this is a man you'll remember who was taken up to the third heaven and seen glories beyond what we can imagine, he says, and that we're not even, we can't even speak of. He had seen that glory. He had in a unique way because of the uniqueness of his suffering been strengthened to suffer because of this glory. And then Paul says, look, I've been through a lot of things. I don't even think of it. It's not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be brought to us. I can be thankful in the midst of it. John could say, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. The world's hatred, he would say, cannot compare to God's love for us in Christ. And so we are heirs of heaven and we should be a thankful people because that is our home. His promises are glorious. Let me end with the words of Luther. He says this, As the children of God, we are the heirs of his eternal heaven. What a wonderful gift heaven is. Man's heart cannot conceive, much less describe. And until we enter upon our heavenly inheritance, we are only to have our little faith to go by. To man's reason, our faith looks rather forlorn. But because our faith rests on the promises of the infinite God, his promises are also infinite so much that nothing can condemn or accuse us. Because that is our home, secured for us by Christ. And so we can be a thankful people. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. Why can you be hopeful in the loss of all things in the chaotic world? Because my home is secure. Yeah, I may have to go through things here, but guess what? Christ is coming. He's returning. And that's our witness to the world. And he's going to set things right. So I'm not grumbling. I'm complaining. I'm going to patiently wait on him to do his will. We need to hear that. How's your Facebook? and social media and talking about these things. Mm-hmm. Are we exalting in the finished work of Christ that's bringing a kingdom? Or do we get wrapped up too easily? 
I know at times I do. I say that as one who needs repentance uh, and the things that are going on. But as we meditate on heaven, we have every reason to be thankful, a thankful and a hopeful and a joyful people because we belong to Christ. Well, let me pray uh, and then we'll end our service. Father, thank you for these promises, precious and magnificent. Help us to see them. Help us to live in the light of the grace that you've shown us in Christ. Help us to see your good hand in all things that come into our life. And Lord, we talk so much about how we're to be thankful in suffering, and we certainly have things that are a trial and a test, but most of us, how little we've suffered. We don't really know what so many of our brethren have gone through, but we can learn from their examples. We can see the testimony of their faith and imitate it. And we don't know what you'll have for us in the future, but we know that as we begin to cultivate an understanding of grace now and gratitude by your spirit working in us, we will be ready. And let us be a thankful people. Let us be a thankful people in our home. Let us be a thankful people in our workplace. Let us be a thankful people who are marked out as those who have experienced grace and have a hope that is certain. And through that gratitude and that witness, Open up doors for us to speak about the gospel and the wonders of Christ and the forgiveness of sin. And if there's any here who are outside of that grace this morning who don't know that, who are walking in the pride of their heart and the stubbornness of their own will, rejecting the glorious gospel of Christ, I pray that you would humble them this morning and bring them to a saving knowledge of you, your dear son. And it's in his name we pray, amen.